Radio. Religion in Education, Society, and Living the Good Life. A talk by Alex Sadu at the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium. Thank you, David. Thank you for the opportunity of being able to present this paper today in front of such an esteemed gathering. It's, uh, it's really rare to have these opportunities, particularly in Tasmania, to engage in this kind of intellectual uh, discussion. So um, I, I really do appreciate uh, these opportunities. In this paper today, I aim to provide some reflections on what I see as particularly dangerous, dangerous trends in modern education. These reflections or insights have come from my own experiences tutoring and lecturing, both undergraduate and graduate students, um, and in raising my own children uh, more recently. I would like to focus on several dangerous trends or features in education, each, I believe, related to each other uh, and, and built on a critique of Enlightenment epistemology, something I think has already been discussed here in previous papers. First, I will outline in brief this critique, the critique of Enlightenment epistemology, and argue for the historical and tradition-dependent nature of human conceiving and understanding, and what this might mean for our approach to education. Secondly, I will argue that the use of the term religion distorts our understanding of Christianity and particularly how we understand education in the context of Christian faith. Third and finally, I want to discuss from within the Christian tradition the dangerous trend of the alienation of parents and the family from the education of the person. And along with this, the loss of vocational discernment as part of the educational process. Now, what I mean here by vocational discernment, I want to be quite um, specific, um, is uh, the discernment of God's calling uh, for our life. In trying to cover this material, I'll be unable to express or capture the full complexity of what I'm, dis what I'm discussing, what I hope to share with you. But we'd be happy to take up uh, any omissions or simplifications you think I've made during a question time. The first dangerous trend or feature... One of the central problems, I believe, with the modern academy, and indeed at all levels of schooling, is the lack of understanding of the extent of disagreement between those who affirm rival conceptions of the good. We hear regularly about increasing plurality in Western society, that there is fundamental disagreement over the nature of the human good. The work of the philosopher Alistair McIntyre in particular has shown that there is not just disagreement over the nature of the human good, for which there is no neutral or independent standard to which appeal can be made, there is actually disagreement over how to conceive of reality, for which there is no neutral or independent standard. In attempting to resolve disagreement between those inhabiting rival moral and political standpoints, we lack the ability to appeal to some more basic way of viewing and understanding reality. We are always already making sense of reality, in particular human action and the social and political order, through some particular way of conceiving and understanding, and cannot engage in inquiry without some prior theoretical or doctrinal commitment. This means that there can be no stripping away 
of bias and prejudice to reveal a true, natural, objective and impartial way of conceiving, characterising and understanding how things are, as the theorists of modernity, particularly Enlightenment theorists, believe. For there is no more basic materialist or physical, physicalist way of conceiving that is less controversial than other ways of conceiving. They are equally ultimate and equally controversial. There is no neutral or impartial ground upon which one can stand to see how things really are and act as a neutral adjudicator. The so-called God's eye view is simply not there. It is therefore not a matter of deciding whether to theorise through a particular conceptual or theoretical standpoint or not. Rather, it is a matter of one's self-awareness of the conceptual or theoretical standpoint through which one is always already ineliminably conducting inquiries. Aristotelian, Augustinian, Thomist, Humean, Kantian, Hegelian, Marxist, Hesalian, liberal, analytic, phenomenological, existentialist, and the list could go on, or some combination of these. As McIntyre notes in Which Justice Whose Rationality, for example, with regard to the moral and political reality, where Aristotle's formulations are in terms of arche, techne, suke, logos, ergon, praxis, pathos, arete, and polis, Hume's deploys impression, idea, passion, calm and violent, nature, artifice, virtue, society, and government. One does not undertake to address a particular issue or concern from some universal way or absolute way of conceiving of reality. Rather, we can only do this always already through some particular tradition of inquiry or belief, with its own distinctive way of conceiving of reality. What this means, and what is crucial therefore, is history. Everything emerges from a particular history or context. Our language and understandings, our institutions, indeed we ourselves, are the outcome of a particular history. History is not simply peripheral or ancillary, some distinct academic field of inquiry. Rather, we are the very outcome of history. And while there are, of course, rival histories and narratives, there is as yet no neutral, independent or non-historically situated standard to which appeal can be made. To capture this, McIntyre employs a concept of tradition. And I think this is particularly helpful. To appeal to tradition is to insist that we cannot adequately identify either our own commitments or those of others in, in the argumentative conflicts of, what the, of, of the present, except by situating them within those histories which made them what they have become. Whether we recognise this or not, it is inescapable. We are inescapably bearers of tradition. We are necessarily situated within some particular narrative or overall context. The particular theoretical framework or conceptual scheme we inhabit is therefore always situated within some broader history or tradition, according to McIntyre. This is not a concession to relativism, quite the opposite. For the other insight I take from McIntyre's work is that while there is no neutral or independent standard to which appeal can be made, there is no way of avoiding relying on truth claims. We necessarily and can only operate in our daily lives on the basis of, our of, of an understanding of the nature and purpose of human existence that we hold to be true. 
that things are as we believe them to be and not otherwise. We therefore are inescapably claimers, if not seekers of truth. We do not want to rely on error or what is false. Further, we can move towards truth through testing our own tradition for inconsistency and weakness and seeking to engage or understand other traditions of belief and assessing whether they are better able to explain how we find ourselves and our experience of reality. Then looking at our own tradition, whether these other traditions can account for deficiencies that we feel exist in our own. I would contend that we need to properly grasp the full implication of this level of disagreement, which is an un unavoidable feature of human existence. While we may share to a great extent a common vocabulary within our society, use the same terms, and have the ability to communicate with those with whom we disagree, we do not share the same understanding of this vocabulary or the terms we use. Yet academic teaching at all levels does not properly express this reality. Specifically, there is, no, there is not simple disagreements over theories and explanations, but actually rival ways of conceiving of the reality and the subject matter being considered. Instead, these things are presented as if in the teacher's own way of conceiving of reality is true, that they're simply given. In doing this, they, they impose their own way of conceiving of things on others and do not acknowledge that there are equally valid rival ways of conceiving of things. This, of course, is a complex issue, and it's not easily addressed here in this forum. Yet a basic way to address this reality is to try and capture this level of disagreement in the way that subjects are taught. In the spirit of this acknowledgement of dependence on tradition, uh, for the purposes of this paper, I want to make clear that I'm approaching this question of education from within my own tradition, the Catholic tradition. The problem of religion. I next want to focus on, on the way this extent of disagreement at the conceptual level impacts our understanding of religion and any role it might be said to have in relation to education. In its common usage, the term religion would seem to refer to a belief system which involves a recognition and or worship of the divine or supernatural. And a central feature of this common Western understanding is that such belief system, religious belief systems, are an add-on to a more basic understanding of reality or nature, which is commonly referred to as the secular or the secular realm. The secular is held to be a neutral space where we encounter the real, a pure experience of reality unfiltered by any prejudiced or biased beliefs. This secular realm, the realm of the real, is understood or claimed to have its own integrity and independence from theology and metaphysics. You can subscribe to religion or religious belief or not. It does not make any difference to how we understand and experience reality. Religion in this sense is, is a kind of peculiarity, a fetish. Believe in it if it makes you feel better, but it does not make any real difference to how things are in reality. In political theory, this phenomenon has been referred to as the privatisation of religion and is a feature of liberal political theory, particularly, the work of, uh, particularly beginning with the work of John Locke. The original use of the term secular did not convey this meaning. It comes from the Latin term seculum, 
which refers to an age or period of time, as the previous speakers have mentioned. It was used um, by St Augustine to indicate that Christ ushered in a new era or seculum. However, by the 14th century, it had come also to refer to a state of life that was not religious in terms of clergy who were not part of a religious order, but instead were diocesan priests or deacons. It involved a reference to a particular way of life for a Christian, one that was more concerned with the world or worldly things, such as administrative matters or civil government. Secular priests were those that lived in the world, not in monasteries, with, with its own communal ex existence or life. However, in part through the influence of Enlightenment thinkers and their quest to seek a more sure foundation for human thought than theology could apparently provide, the secular came to refer to a more radical separation and indeed opposition to what is now or was referred to as religion or the supernatural. As Professor Benson noted uh, in, his, in his paper, by the 1850s, the term secular or secularism was used to refer to a way of approaching morality which removed any reference to God or the supernatural. The term has gone from referring to a period of time to designating different types of priestly life, clerical life, to finally being used to refer to a space that is claimed to be separate from the divine. Employing the term secular obviously can be very confusing and arguably one needs to explain quite clearly what one means when employing it. Going back to the term religion, as William T. Kavanagh notes in his work, The Myth of Religious Violence, the term religion is a creation of the epistemology of modernity, particularly in its Enlightenment form. The use of the term presupposes the acceptance of a particular contested metaphysics or anti-theology of modern liberal philosophy. As he argues, there is no trans-historical or trans-cultural concept of religion. Rather, this concept arises from the liberal metaphysics which defines what it regards as religion, as essentially interior and as essentially distinct from public secular rationality. As we discover, the term religion only started to really come into popular usage from the 16th century onwards, embodying this understanding. It was not a neutral term for merely referring to Christianity, but was the embodiment of a particular view or way of conceiving of Christianity as interior and private, as superfluous and distorting to how things really are. An essential part of this modern concept religion, of religion was that, was that what was referred to as religious is separable from politics and culture that we can approach politics and culture, education, without relying on some controversial understanding of the nature and purpose of human existence. It is an understanding we find in the work of more recent liberal philosophers such as John Rawls. Using this concept allows one to view what are regarded or referred to as religions as avoidable or optional without any significance for the social or political world or education. I can choose to be religious or I can exist without any religious beliefs or presuppositions. Whereas in reality we cannot avoid relying on some particular understanding of the nature and purpose of human existence in the very living of our daily lives, for which there is no absolute proof as such. We necessarily take some value as ultimate in deciding what we do at any given instance of our day. 
The only question is how well developed or consistent our particular understanding is. We cannot therefore avoid commitment to some ultimate value or belief about human existence. Yet we cannot also absolutely prove that this belief is true. We can offer reasons, but not absolute fundamental proof. We cannot avoid relying or claiming our understanding of the nature and purpose of human existence is true, but we cannot prove it absolutely. In other words, we cannot avoid faith. Belief in that for which we reach a point where no further arguments or proof is possible. Everyone unavoidably lives by faith. I would contend, therefore, there is a need to be very careful in employing the term religion, as it is the embodiment of a particular modern liberal understanding which sought to reconceive Christianity in a fundamentally distorting way. In fact, I would encourage not using the term religion at all. It is simply a modern Enlightenment creation. Christianity is not a religion. It doesn't conceive of itself as a religion. As I will go on to a moment to discuss, rather, Christianity sees itself uh, not even as a way, but the way. The only path to true happiness. Portraying or presenting Christianity as a religion in Western society, and therefore something to which we can supposedly remain neutral, has meant that Christianity, as a, as a dominant guiding belief in Western society, has been quietly replaced with a form of practical atheistic emotivism or hedonism combined somewhat with political liberalism, or with their own controversial metaphysical claims about the nature and purpose of human existence. The reality is you cannot avoid living your life according to some particular way of conceiving and understanding the nature and purpose of human existence. You cannot therefore avoid accepting or rejecting Christianity. One cannot remain neutral. What does this mean? For the Christian, this means there is no deeper or more real way of understanding and conceiving of reality than what is presented in the Christian tradition. Christianity therefore involves not just a set of beliefs, but a radically different way of conceiving of the reality we experience, which is not some addition on top of the real, but rather is the real. Christianity involves a way of seeing the world as it truly is in both its material and spiritual reality. The Christian conceptual framework does not impose a religious vision on reality. Rather, it reveals, it reveals things how they are, or as close to how they are, really are, within the, the, the reality of limitations of fallen human nature and intellect. Christianity is a particular way of conceiving and understanding the nature and purpose of human existence for which there is no more basic understanding. This is, of course, not to deny the insights into human nature we have gained through observation, through what we refer to as philosophy. As the truth of these ob observations will align with the understanding that comes from revelation. There are two sources of truth here, revelation and observation of created nature. Importantly, this is a nature which has a talos or end. 
Christianity is not a religion properly understood in its own native language. It is, as Christ said, the way. Further, for the Christian, the only true understanding is that of Christianity. What is necessary for the good life ultimately can only be found in the way of Christ. Christianity is not an aspect or dimension of the good life. Rather, it is the good life and the only way that will lead to authentic happiness. The Christian tradition and education. Properly understood, I believe that the Catholic tradition views education as a process of forming the human person in order that they might fully flourish as a human being, materially and spiritually, body, mind and soul. The term education, I believe, comes from the Latin to lead out or draw out. Whether intended or not, from a Christian perspective, this notion of drawing out captures the concept of perfecting human nature, developing or drawing out what is there in that nature, which is necessary to live the good life. In order to properly talk about education in the Christian context, we therefore first need to clarify and establish the nature that we are seeking to perfect through education. So we need to address the question of what is the human person? More fundamentally, we are confronted with the question, what is the nature and purpose of human existence according to the Christian understanding? The Christian understanding of the human person, the nature and purpose, is not a religious understanding of human existence, as I said earlier, which has simply been laid on top of a more basic understanding. Rather, there is nothing more real than what we find in the Christian teaching. The Christian tradition has an extremely rich understanding of the human person, and it's not possible here to fully capture that. So I'll only attempt to offer a most basic sketch of some of the key features. The tradition teaches that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, to know, to love, and to serve him. We are literally created for God to share in his divine life. We have intellect to know, free will, which gives us the capacity to choose and therefore to love, and an immortal soul. Specifically, we are the combination of body and soul, moulded from earth and given life by the breath of God. Further, we believe that God is not a solitary entity, but rather a dynamic community of three persons, the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We are therefore made in the image and likeness of a divine community of persons, to share in the, in the life of this divine community. We are literally made for community. From this view, we know human nature is fixed. It has a particular design or purpose, a telos, as the ancient Greeks would say, according to which the person flourishes. And this end or purpose is divine beatitude with God. While we have the capacity to choose we also have the desire inherent in human nature for this relationship with God. As Augustine says, For you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Or as the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only will he find the truth and happiness he stops 
Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. And again, it's in its compendium of social teaching, the church states, the likeness with God shows that the essence and existence of man are constitutively related to God in the most profound manner. This is a relationship that exists in itself. It is therefore not something that comes afterwards and is not added from the outside. The whole of man's life is a quest, a search for God. This relationship can be ignored or even, for, or even forgotten or dismissed, but it can never be eliminated. Indeed, among all the world's visible creatures, only man has a capacity for God. End quote. On the basis of these passages, we can see that human nature literally is defined by its being made for relationship with God. We were created created for relationship with God. And in this way, it is actually unnatural to be without relationship with God. However, the final crucial feature of this story is the fall of humanity. Our first parents chose to reject God's friendship through disobedience and so fractured this relationship with God and harmony of relationship that existed both with, between God and man, amongst human beings, and, with human, and, and between human beings and nature. Christ was sent by the Father to restore this relationship through his sacrifice, dying for humanity on the cross. Despite original sin, though, we still have this desire for God. Yet knowledge of the truth, the full truth of this desire, is imperfect and requires grace or God's assistance. God still remains our end, but we cannot realise this end without his grace. In educating, we are seeking to cultivate or develop this human nature in order that it achieve its full good or human flourishing, which is God. The only way this nature can be fully developed in order to achieve authentic flourishing is through being conformed to the way of Christ, literally by putting on Christ. And paradoxically, it is only through conforming to Christ that we find what is truly human. In other words, authentic humanism is not found simply in turning to what is human, but only in turning (coughs) to what is divine. As Gaudium et Spes, number 22, one of the documents of the Second Vatican Council teaches, the truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was figured of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. End quote. The only thing that is real and lasting is therefore God who is eternal. Everything else is limited, dependent on God in some way. In human earthly existence, what seems real and tangible in terms of the material world ultimately is temporary and passing. As Catherine Pickstop observes in her work after, after writing, this material existence is already dying. A focus or love on the material can only be a form of necrophilia or love of dead things. 
Yet what seems ethereal and intangible and in some sense unreal, the spiritual or the divine, is actually what has eternal stability and reality. For the Christian, the whole point and purpose of education is this eternal beatitude or communion with God. This requires the full development of the person, not just a focus on spirituality. It concerns a physical, intellectual and emotional development, but in proper integration with the spiritual, which must take primacy. An authentically liberal education on this account, an education that truly liberates, can only be a Christian education, as it is only through relationship with Christ that the person has the opportunity to achieve authentic freedom. Parental alienation. This leads me to the final dangerous trend I'd like to focus on, the trend of parental alienation in education, and I might add familial alienation in education. Education should not be understood narrowly in terms of institutional schooling. This is certainly part of the education of children or the educational process, but too much of the focus on education in the contemporary age is placed on educational institutions, primary, secondary, and increasingly pre-primary. The Catholic tradition maintains, as Paul VI said in Gravissimum Educationis, that the parents are the primary and principal educators of their children, where family or family life has also been referred to as the domestic church or first seminary. This duty, the duty of raising children, is perhaps the most fundamental duty of parents. An education, as noted previously or properly understood, refers to the full development or formation of the person. With the advent of mass formal education and changes in family and economic structures, the role of parents in, ed in the education of their children has increasingly diminished. Parents see their children for less and less time during the week. Indeed, their teachers and school classmates would seem to spend more time with them than their parents. And, their critical and the critical formation of them is more and more influenced by the school environment and those around them, than the family and the home environment. Without realising it, the state has become more and more dominant, sidelining family life, to the extent where it is the state or institutions of the state more or less raising our children, and not so much their parents. In this sense, we've become more and more like the Soviet-style totalitarian society than perhaps we realise. It is fundamentally important that, this, that the increasing complexity of educational programs and curriculum in schools does not continue and further exacerbate this movement. There will, of course, always be a minority of parents unable to provide the kind of formation required for their child to flourish, but this will always remain the minority or should be the minority. Parents, not schools, need to be understood as the primary focus for education of the children. We need to resist the temptation to see schools as mostly responsible for the formation of our children. This point is increasingly being realised in research being undertaken on educational outcomes. Children, the research shows, do best when parents are fully engaged in their schooling. 
The United States government has recognised this problem and sought to try and address it through the Family Engagement in Education Act 2011. The Australian government similarly has what it calls a parent engagement agenda and has developed initiatives to support this being realised. However, the focus seems to be on trying to get parents more engaged in their children's schooling to try and get them better supporting the efforts of the school. Yet this fundamentally inverses what should be the true relationship, which is the school supporting the efforts of the parents. On the current mindset, it is the school that is viewed as the primary educator of the child, with the parents being called to better support the efforts of the school. Instead, it clearly needs to be the other way around, where parents are, the are seen as the primary educators of the children with the school supporting them. However, it seems that this inversing of the relationship has happened with the professionalisation of the educational process. Parents are considered not to have the professional knowledge in the area of education to know what is best for their children. So they hand their children over to the school and expect the school to essentially educate and raise their child. The parents believe this. They believe the schools have an expertise that they do not have, and so they seek out the best school available. Yet what is not realised is that it is not the school uh, which has the crucial role here, but the parents. And it is not investing more and more money in sending a child to a better school that makes the difference, but instead investing more and more time, the parents' time in the life of the child. This is not to deny the significant good work done by schools and the importance of good educational institutions. Rather, my concern is to try and get back to the basis of the problem, which is an inversing of the proper relationship between parents and schools. Indeed, government needs to look at ways that it can invest in giving parents the opportunity to spend more time in the home with their children rather than on better educational institutions as such or facilities. What I'm contending is that we as parents need to be doing more uh, and indeed more supported fundamentally by the government in our roles as parents and primary educators. So what type of program or curriculum should be employed by parents? What is referred to as a liberal arts education is an approach to formal intellectual instruction that has been developed over the centuries with a focus intent on providing a cur curriculum that literally frees or liberates the person from narrowness or partiality. It does so by providing what has become viewed as the essentials that will enable the person to realise their full intellectual development, the trivium and the quadrivium. What is fundamental to the liberal arts approach is not so much the exact details of the subjects, but the overall understanding is a course of study that ultimately aims at freeing or liberating the mind. And freedom, as we know, can only be found in truth. Without truth, there can be no freedom. In an age where the notion of objective truth is increasingly under attack, this commitment to truth is absolutely crucial. Yet, what's, yet what tends to get missed on this approach at times is the fundamental role that theology, and in particular the way in which each subject needs to be presented in terms of a Christian way of conceiving of the world, as discussed earlier. The role of parents is absolutely crucial in the formation also of conscience and virtue. 
both with regard to imparting principles and in practice. Parents need to be focused on how to develop the right habits and behaviour of virtue in their children, through instruction but also through example. And this is particularly true of imparting of faith. The most important role that parents have in the education of their, of their children is faith formation, both in terms of formal instruction and in practical example. What is crucial to impart is the Christian way of viewing the world through the way in which parents speak and interact with their children, in the celebrations of feasts and the undertaking of fasts, in the images that are displayed in the home and the songs that are sung, in attending Mass and praying as a family, faithfully lived in all its richness. Finally, a crucial focus of the education of the person that is mostly ignored is the discernment of vocation, understood here as the working out of God's particular plan for one's life. Vocational discernment concerns trying to work out both what particular form of life God has called you to, priestly, marriage, consecrated, uh, and the way in which you'll realise this. It is, not, it is not possible to explore this any further, but I simply know it is another dangerous trend or feature of modern education, particularly within the Christian context, that we do not focus adequately on this discerning of vocation through the educational process. In summary, there can be no authentically liberal education on the Christian understanding without an approach that fully embraces the Christian way of conceiving of reality in all aspects of imparting knowledge and a formation in faith, both intellectual and practical, that provides the person with the opportunity to one day share in the divine life of the Trinity. And the role of parents in this is absolutely crucial. Thank you. That was Alex Sadu with Religion in Education, Society and Living the Good Life. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium on the theme Liberal Education, Restoring the Notion of Education as the Basis for Living the Good Life, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.